name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. It's the job of financial stability authorities to ensure the financial system is resilient and to identify, monitor, and potentially take action to address any impending vulnerabilities. By any measure, that's a critical responsibility and one that involves keeping an eye on many balls at the same time. The latest Financial Stability Board annual report, for instance, highlights a variety of potential stability risks, including lingering impacts from the coronavirus pandemic, stretched asset valuations and increased risk-taking by investors, vulnerabilities in the non-bank financial intermediation sector, and the rapid growth of crypto assets. The trick, of course, is deciding which, if any, of these risks warrant supervisory action. In this episode, we'll be exploring some of these issues in detail with our guest, Sir John Cunliffe, the Bank of England's Deputy Governor for Financial Stability. Asking the questions will be ISDA's CEO, Scott Amalia. Hello, Scott. Hey, Nick. Scott, I'm excited about this episode. It's going to be fascinating to get an insight into some of the issues that are keeping financial stability authorities up at night. It certainly will. Obviously, we've only recently experienced a period of extreme volatility triggered by the rapid spread of the coronavirus in March of 2020, the dash for cash. Central banks took action to dump money into the financial system, which helped support the real economy. Financial markets also remained resilient, helped by the financial reforms implemented after the last crisis. But there are some lessons that can be learned, so I'll be keen to talk with Sir John about those key questions. Let's get straight to it then. Sir John, thanks so much for joining us on The Swap. It's a real honor to have you here with us today. I'd like to start off by looking back at the market turmoil in March of 2020. Several reports, including a recent one from the Financial Stability Board, have noted that banks and financial markets remained resilient during the market turmoil of 2020, which is largely attributed to two factors. One is the quick action by central banks to pump money into the financial system, and the second was the regulatory reforms implemented after the crisis. Would you agree with this and and have the post-crisis reforms made financial markets and derivative markets in particular more resilient? So I think, Scott, you have to unpack that a little bit if I can. I think the banking system was made markedly more resilient by the reforms for both capital and the liquidity side that we brought in after the financial crisis. Uh, just it's the amount of capital and the quality of capital. So when you went through that period somewhere around about the end of February, beginning of March, where everyone looked at the world economy and basically repriced all assets, we did not get concerns about which banks would take losses. Remember, at that point, we didn't know how the public sector was going to step in governments to support employment, to support firms. We did not get people, analysts and market participants saying, OK, which banks are weak? Which banks have lent to this sector, etc.? Who's got weak capital? And then you get that cycle starting where credit suddenly starts to be withdrawn in the system. Think back to 2007, 2008. And likewise, we didn't get counterparty credit risk. People saying, okay, somebody's holding a bomb here. Who's holding the bomb? So that worked, I think, very well. And particularly the wholesale market banks, you know, the market makers and the like, there was no suggestion that they were going to suffer in this crisis. And on the retail side, retail and corporate, I mean, UK banks lent 30 times more in March 2020 than they do in a normal month. So before all the government support and everything else came in, corporates drew down on those revolving credit facilities. And the banks absorbed that. They had the liquidity and they had the capital. The reason why markets remain stable 
was primarily because central banks intervened. So you only have to look at the dash for cash. And what you saw happen, you see it from about third week, second week of February to first week of March, you see what you'd expect to see a flight to safety. So the prices of government bonds go up, the price of gold goes up, I think, 4%. And then somewhere around about second week of March, 9th, 10th of March, for the next two and a half weeks, that goes into reverse. People start selling high-quality liquid assets. The price of gold goes down by three times as much as it went up in the middle of that. So what has happened in that period is people decide they need cash. And to get cash, they will sell the next best thing, which is the most liquid assets they own. And you start to see margin call come in. It comes in right from the beginning. So when government bonds and safe assets are going up in price, of course, margin call comes in there because the price is moving. But the real margin call and stress starts in that week as this dash for cash accelerates. And you're going to ask me, I'm sure, about procyclicality and the like, but it's meant to be procyclical. We'll come to that. And it adds an amplification effect. But then people obviously want to sell the most liquid things they have, money market fund shares, government bonds. And you get into a spiral. The price goes down. The more the price goes down, the more people are desperate to sell. We've seen those fire sale dynamics in markets before. We saw them in 2008, nine. Central banks came in and underpinned the core funding markets. We bought 200 billion of gilts. And in some jurisdictions, particularly the US, they underpin more than the core funding markets. They underpin the municipal market, the corporate bond market, and the like. And that's what stabilized markets. A lot of people say to me, look, everybody met their redemption. You know, everybody met their margin. But the question is, what would have happened if we had allowed those dynamics to continue? And at some point, of course, it would have got across to the banking sector because, because there's a limit to how far these things can go. So I'd say... Core banking sector, core infrastructure reforms made a difference. Market-based finance, which is much more important now than it was 10, 11 years ago, order restored by public sector intervention. Terrific. Great summary. Thank you for that. Now, the FSB report identifies several issues that may warrant further consideration, including the usability of capital and liquidity buffers and, as you mentioned, the procyclicality on margin calls. How much of a priority are these issues and how might they be addressed and any other lessons you might have learned from that period? So I think this is a key priority now for the international regulatory community. To be clear, the fault lines and the vulnerabilities in market-based finance are not the same as the vulnerabilities in banks that we saw 10 years ago. It's not really a solvency issue as such. It's a liquidity issue. And these markets don't sort of reach into into people's households in the way that the banking sector does. But nonetheless, we've seen, and I think this is not the the first one of these instances we've seen, we've seen over the last few years, markets are prone to jump to illiquidity very quickly. And that's not just the markets that we know that are illiquid, like high-yield corporate bonds. It's also the markets which you expect to be liquid, jump to illiquidity under stress. And if we don't tackle the reasons for that, now, and we've had a, a warning, and if you like, a warning that didn't become much worse because of public sector intervention. If we don't address the causes, and the causes are many, this is not a simple problem where you know, there's one sector that's at fault or there's a silver bullet. This is about the way in which parts of the system interact and interlock. But if we don't address that now, the next time we hit a stress, 
this will happen again. And people say to me, but this is a one in 100 year, it's about 100 years since the Spanish flu. Yeah, one in 100 year stress. You know, you've got to expect certain things. And I would expect liquidity stress, but I wouldn't expect a kind of flight to safety turning into a self-reinforcing downward spiral on liquidity. So I really do think we have to address it now. And as I say, there are a number of dimensions to what happened and to what we might have to do. Okay, let's unpack the liquidity issue a little bit. Margin calls on clear derivatives jumped significantly during the March 2020 time period. And do you expect any changes in UK regulation in response to mitigate the pro-cyclicality in the future? So this is an international issue. The group which Russ Benham chair of the CFTC and I chair with my CPMI hat on have just released a report analysing what happened in those key weeks in February, March, April of 2020 and pointing to some areas to further work. I can go through them because they're all important. One of them, though, is to look at the responsiveness of margin models to volatility. It's not a simple high response to volatility is bad, a low response to volatility is good. There's a balance here. There's a balance between, from the point of view of the system as a whole, you know, how much margin is called in normal times, how much margin is called in stress times. And there's a balance as well for the system, which also goes to the, the cost of clearing. And some jurisdictions have what is charmingly known as anti-procyclicality, which must be the craziest phrase in the English language, anti-procyclicality. It's a bit like kind of anti-cryptonite or something. Um, but um, some have anti-procyclicality provisions which are intended to dampen volatility in times of extreme stress. Yeah, we have to look at how those operated. But what we saw in this report right across all the areas is considerable heterogeneity between CCPs, between product lines. And you'd expect that to some extent because, you know, trading metals futures is very different to interest rate derivatives. But even within the same clearing service, because this the analysis is quite granular, you see a lot of heterogeneity, you see a lot of heterogeneity in models. And heterogeneity is a good thing in some ways because it gives you kind of not everybody is doing the same thing. Having kind of one margin model for the planet would be quite dangerous. But we have to do some work and explore that question. As to UK CCPs, given the services they provide and where the volatility was, I don't think there was a particularly big issue with pro-cyclicality. But as I say, we won't move kind of in the UK or, or whatever in advance of where we come out internationally. We really, and we haven't completed the international work. We've done the analysis and we've said this is the work we'd like to do. There are six areas of work and maybe we'll go into that a bit later. But one of them is around responsiveness of margin models to volatility and really the costs and benefits for CCPs and for the system as a whole. And it's not an easy issue but it's an issue I think we should explore. I should, and I hope listeners will forgive me for not doing this, I should have said at the very outset, I kind of hinted at it, margin is supposed to move when there is volatility. Variation margin moves automatically. You know, the winners win and the losers lose. And initial margin, and people say to me, well, you know, initial margin protects the CCP. Yeah, it does protect the CCP, but actually it's protecting the clearing members of the CCP. It's protecting the default fund. So, you know, if you don't have enough initial margin, you have to mutualize the cost of things going wrong. And initial margin is the buffer that means that the individual firm pays rather than all the members of the CCP. That is expected to happen in volatility. 
question is, is it happening as efficiently? Have we got the balance right? So let's turn to money markets, which is another one of the reforms mentioned in the Financial Stability uh, Board report. So both the Bank of England and the FSB have highlighted structural vulnerabilities in money market funds during March of 2020, which amplified the stress in short-term funding markets. Can you give us a little context about the cause of these structural vulnerabilities and what extent do they pose threat to the financial stability? Yeah, so for those of us like me who are great fans of Oscar Wilde, you know, the importance of being earnest springs to mind. To lose one parent is unfortunate. To lose two smacks of carelessness. This is the uh, the second time that we've uh, uh, had a stressed event in money markets, funds when markets got stressed, and in which they've seen kind of large outflows. We were supposed to have fixed it after the financial crisis and some of the reforms. I mean, I think some of those reforms did work. So you saw in the US a difference between uh, government bond funds and prime funds. And actually, you saw a run out of prime into government bonds. I don't know what happens the third time, but certainly we've had two. And we really do need to address it. I think what's at the root of the problem, okay, is that these funds uh, invest in what are normally very liquid instruments. But these are not instruments that are cash-like. They're near cash. And under stress, the markets for those instruments breaks down. I'm talking about primarily about the non-government bonds, CP, the CD market, etc. And we have something which is treated as cash by the depositors, and actually is not cash. And you know, in a stress, being near cash doesn't help you that much if near cash markets have collapsed. And therefore, they have a buffer of liquidity. I think there are certainly some things we could do to enable them to use their buffer of liquidity, whereas changes we made after the financial crisis pretty much forced them into restricting outflows when they got into their buffer. So there are some issues about that. But the fact remains that if there is only a limited amount of liquidity, and limited is less than 100%, and there is stress, there will be first mover advantage on a product that offers instant daily redemption. And people say to me, well, if we have, if we can use our buffers, that will go away. Maybe. I'd say the history of bank runs and runnable instruments is that it only goes away if you have 100%. You know, if you have 80%, there's still first mover advantage, and actually the run accelerates. So liquidity buffers under stress, I think, only protect you to a certain extent. Once that dynamic kicks in, no matter how much liquidity you've got, unless people can see that you have enough to serve everybody, you will have those dynamics. So one can operate on that in different ways. One can try and make sure that the investors do not see these funds as cash-like. And again, I draw a bit of a distinction between prime and sovereign, but actually corporate treasurers who tell me they use money market funds because it's an efficient way to manage their treasury stuff and they go in and out of them as if they would go in and out of a bank account, need to realize that this is not a cash-like instrument because it can't back up the redemption promise. I think there has to be some restrictions to reduce first mover advantage. That's another way you can act on this. So basically, if there's a cost to the first movers, which represents the cost to the other members of the fund of people leaving first, then maybe you can dampen the flows out in a stress event. There may be something about the assets in which they invest and ensuring that those assets get as close to cash as possible. Buy to hold assets with no secondary market, commercial paper, (laughs) 
Yeah, okay, it's, it's short. It's, it's uh, you know, a very short sentence, obviously. But actually, something that has no secondary market shouldn't really be backing up something that people feel is cash. We can argue about what happened and kind of why it happened, but if you ask me what the fundamental reason for those dynamics, and we saw run dynamics in sterling money market funds, and of course we were really concerned about contagion, particularly with the history of the financial crisis, that when one goes, then the run dynamics will really set in. So you don't really have kind of much room for manoeuvre. If you like, you have to reduce the demand for that liquidity and the stress. And you have to kind of increase the supply. My guess is, I'm not sure what the UK will do with the recommendations in the FSB report. There are different ways you can act on this. But in the end, you have to address that fundamental problem, or it won't be kind of losing one parent is unfortunate, two is careless, it'll be three. I think in the US, they have a saying about the number of strikes you're allowed. Can't quite remember it, but I think it starts at three. That's right. It is true. Three strikes and you are out. Yeah. Now, we're very supportive, it is, of, of safe cash-like characteristics of the public debt markets in order to use them as collateral. Collateral is a much bigger feature, certainly post-financial reform. So getting this right, making sure that these funds are accessible and available and safe is very important. Now, you said you kind of, in the last answer there, weren't sure exactly how this was going to play out, but the FSB did publish a set of policy proposals in October intended to enhance the resilience of these funds. What likelihood do you think they will be adopted both domestically in the UK and then more by the broader audience? Well, the FSB agreement was that different jurisdictions will tackle this problem, but different jurisdictions might choose different mixes of policies. And there are different structures. US money market funds are quite different to European ones. And we have the European legislation for money market funds, and most of our sterling funds are offshore anyway. So I think in the UK, we'll look at as I say, which mix of options we think makes sense for us. But of course, in three years' time, we'll all have to report back to the FSB on what we've done and why. So I'm confident that jurisdictions will address this question. There are long implementation lags. You know, I don't know what the picture would look like in three years, but there is a commitment to address the issue using a mix of these tools. And look, one of them is to take out some of the cliff edge effects that are in the current system which is also important. So it's a balance between, you know, which part of the problem you act on. You probably have to act on a number of parts at the same time. But I'm confident the jurisdictions will address that and then come back and report what they've done. We'll have to see. Kind of ask a big picture question. With the large central bank intervention, and Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor, said central banks turning on the fire hoses on full blast was the response needed to prevent the last crisis in liquidity. Does this create an expectation of future crises that, you know, the central banks are going to have to come rescue markets? So I think that is a real concern. I mean, I made the same point at the beginning that financial markets were not stabilized by the 2010 reforms. They were stabilized by the fire hose, to use Andrew's uh, statement. And one does not want the perception in markets that liquidity will always be backstopped by the central bank. And of course, we didn't mention it, but to some extent, the whole situation was backstopped by fiscal action by governments as well. And you can't depend on that being available every time. Central banks have mandates around inflation. It may not always be the case that they have the ability or are able to come in and backstop in that way. 
what I think the question is for central banks is we do have a financial stability responsibility. We do have channels to get liquidity to the market. Those channels have traditionally worked through the banking system. And what we see now, just the size of the wholesale banking system relative to the size of non-bank finance and the, the willingness of those banks and their ability because of regulation, you know, to operate channeling liquidity to the market may mean that we have to find other ways to get liquidity to the market. Non-bank finance is just kind of more important. But you don't want to do that in a way that creates, and this is a charming Victorian phrase, moral hazard. So we provide the backstop to the banking sector, but we do expect the banking sector to self-insure to quite a high degree. And then we say, okay, for events that are in the tail of the distribution, you can't self-insure for everything. We will come in, the solvency is there, we will come in and provide that liquidity. I think the same applies to market-based finance. If it wants access to public sector liquidity, it has to self-insure its liquidity to a reasonable degree rather than I don't have to worry about liquidity management because the central bank has my back. It will not necessarily have to self-insure in the way that banks do it. Some of this might not be about ensuring you have the liquidity reserves, which is what banks have with their HQLA. Some of this might be about, can I dampen down the demand for liquidity and stress? You know, we come back to first mover advantage. We come back to, I invest in illiquid markets. I offer daily redemption. That is liquidity transformation. If I hit a stress, I know I can't sell my corporate bonds. I know they're not liquid in a stress. I have to go to my liquidity buffer. And of course, that's limited. What can I do to reduce the demands that I will face for liquidity in a stress, as well as what can I do to ensure that I have liquidity available? Because it's expensive for funds. Liquidity doesn't yield very much. Uh, It's negative (laughs) in some cases. So it's expensive for funds to hold liquidity. But if you can't hold the liquidity, if you can't dampen the demands and stress, and if you operate in the liquid markets, then I think that's where the problem starts. So central banks need to think about their channels for getting liquidity in the market. I accept that. But the market needs to think about the degree of self-insurance that is reasonable in return for that. That's why I said solving these issues is kind of complex and multifaceted. I'd like to change tack and talk about digital money. Cryptocurrency, stable coins, and tokens have experienced strong growth in recent years, essentially bringing new entrants into the investment and payment space, an area traditionally dominated by highly regulated firms. What implications does this have for financial stability and what extent should the market be subject to regulatory oversight and how might that be achieved? Uh, Okay, Scott, so it might help if I make a distinction at the beginning because the crypto world is very confusing and it's growing fast and people get very confused about different parts of it. It's just crypto. Well, look, crypto is a technology and it's a technology for recording the ownership of assets and transferring the ownership of assets. It's how the technology is used and the purposes it's being used for that either create financial stability risk or don't, and that require regulation or not. And actually, I imagine a lot of this cryptographic technology will be used by traditional finance. It'll be used in clearinghouses. It'll be used in CSDs if it is an effective way of doing what a ledger always does, which is basically move the ownership of things from one party to another party, which is the bedrock of the financial system, the ability to do that. The crypto assets that are not backed by anything. So I'm thinking of Bitcoin, but 
I actually I did a speech recently, was told there are now 8,000 crypto assets on the market, or there's probably 9,000 now, because speech was a few weeks back. Um, these are these are assets that have no, to use the central banker's word, they have no intrinsic value. There's no flow of dividends behind them. There's no real economy operation, you know, a, a firm, a factory, a business behind them. And there's no there's no assets like debts that you can cash. This is an asset which is worth only what somebody else will pay for it. The enthusiasts say, well, the same is true of gold. Gold does actually have a value, but gold also has a very long history in our civilizations and actually in our psychology. These are assets which have grown. I think we're some $2.3 trillion worth of them now. But actually, if people decided tomorrow they were worth more, they'll be worth more. And of course, that will drive a spiral of capital gain, which will encourage people to buy them. If that dynamic goes into reverse, there's nothing to stop it going all the way into reverse. It may not, but there is nothing to stop it doing that. This is a really highly volatile, potentially can go to zero type of asset. 2.3 trillion is quite a lot. Most of it is not being held in the established financial sector. Most of it is directly being held by investors. If it goes to zero, can global investors afford to lose $2.3 trillion without crashing the world economy? Probably. If people take losses directly, that in itself is not normally a financial stability issue, although the size matters. If, however, these assets become highly integrated with the financial system that we know, so if they turn up on bank balance sheets, if they turn up in derivatives contracts, or they have turned up in some derivative contracts, and there's kind of synthetic leverage, if you get the long chains that tie people together, tie a whole lot of participants together to the value of one asset, and if that $2.3 trillion continues to grow, the value sort of multiplied eight times. Now, some of that was COVID-related, people sitting at home, nothing to do, and and the like. But if you started to get that sort of exponential growth, all of those things would be financial stability issues. And we need to think about how this is getting into the traditional financial sector. And that's starting to happen. You know, banks, exchanges, clearing houses, they want to offer products in this. So to my mind, if an asset as volatile as that really gets into the bloodstream of the financial system, then there's a financial stability risk once its value moves. And you know, I, I don't know how far and when, but I do know there's no anchor to the value of this. The, the second point you asked is stable coins. That's a much smaller part of this universe, and they are backed. And the intention there is for the asset to have a stable value and for it to be used as a settlement asset as a means of payment. And there, at the moment, they're mainly used in the crypto world. If you want to buy a non-fungible token for a fractal tulip, or a Damien Hurst original, or race a virtual racehorse on a virtual race meeting, you could pay for these things. The only way you could pay for these things is with stablecoins, and they're used to change the ownership of different forms of cryptographic assets, if I can put it that way. There's a question about how they develop in that space, and this is decentralized finance, and they could be programmed. So in theory, you can do anything that happens in the a traditional financial sector from an insurance contract to a derivative, you could do that with a programmed stablecoin on the one hand and the derivative contract on the other. But there's also the question of can they move out of that world into the traditional world by offering payments services, particularly for retail. And we know that 
there have been a number of proposals, including from a big tech to a DM, to have a retail payment. And that then brings a whole other set of financial stability issues, which is basically good that people have confidence in the money they use. There is actually quite a lot behind the money we use, whether it's our commercial bank deposits or the cash issued by a central bank. But you have confidence in it. And by and large, people don't think in society, am I using Citibank money or Federal Reserve money? It's just money and it works. It hasn't always been true in history. It hasn't always been true in every jurisdiction. But at the moment, this is money that works for people in their everyday lives. If we're going to have a new private issuer of money, the stablecoin providers, they are going to have to be subject to the same regulation to ensure that it works and that it's interoperable with all forms of money in the economy. And that will require bringing them into regulation. And I think a number of jurisdictions are wrestling now exactly how to do that. But internationally, the standard setters are starting to develop standards for that. So it's a really long answer for you. It's a terrific answer. Very helpful. Do you expect central bank digital currency in the UK? And what are the arguments for and against that? So I expect us to answer the question of whether we have one or whether we don't have one with utmost thoroughness and looking not just at the present, but at the future. I don't know what the answer will be, so I co-lead the work in the UK with the Treasury, the Task Force, the Chancellor and the Governor of the Bank of England have set up. There's just recently been an announcement that we hope by the end of next year to come out with a consultation document saying whether we intend to do this or whether we don't, and if we do, what the main parameters of the scheme will be. We have a number of engagement groups with stakeholders across society, everything from citizens' advice bureaus to credit card companies, banks. I'm not going to try and guess the outcome of that work. What is important is that we reach a decision that we will be comfortable with when we make it and that we'll be comfortable with through time. That's very difficult because reading the future is difficult and none of us would have anticipated just how fast our lives are becoming digitalized. On the pros and cons, I think they split into different things. And again, I'm thinking now of the pros and cons of the world as it looks as if it will develop rather than the world we have now. I think we were facing anyway the disappearance of cash from our economies. We feel it more acutely in the UK because it's happened faster here. Sweden has happened and Netherlands, but you know the US have not seen it to the same extent. COVID has accelerated. So central bank state-issued money is disappearing from people's pockets, if I can put it that way. It's no longer a kind of full-service settlement asset. You can't use it for internet shopping. There are now a number of places in London, UK, where you can't use it face-to-face in a shop. They won't take it. So the thing that the government provides, that the state provides, which is money, form of banknotes, it'll be there for a long time. But it's not what I would call full service. You know, it's not full use. So a big question, I think, for central banks is what role does state-issued money play, state-issued money in the hands of citizens, issue electronic money to banks, but what role does physical cash play in anchoring the stability of money in our economies. And it might play a role in two ways. One, it ensures interoperability. So, you know, you may have an account at Citibank and I may have an account, you know, at HSBC and we can swap, you know, claims on Citibank for claims on HSBC. But also you have to be able, or Citibank has to be able to give you cash out of an ATM. 
and HSBC has to. And that actually means that you know, all this money has to be fungible, interchangeable, because in the end, it's all got to be able to go into central bank money if the person holding it decides one day I want to take it all out and hold it in cash. So there's an interoperability and gluing together of the system that central bank money provides. And the other thing it provides is a bit more speculative, which is psychologically, I don't think people really understand what money they have. And there's no reason why they should. I mean, they don't understand electricity to use it. So why should you understand what lies behind your money? You just want to use it and know that it's safe. But I think most people have in their minds that dollar bill, that pound note, that euro coin or note, that's money. And if they can't access state money, then psychologically or in a stress, does confidence in money. Because you know, state money is the safest. Despite what some of the crypto advocates say, money issued by central banks is the safest asset. And if people don't have access to that in stress, will that undermine? So those are, from a central bank point of view, really big and important questions. There's then questions about the efficiency, inclusion, competition, a whole range of things that go broader than central banks. We're not responsible for competition policy. We're not responsible for innovation. The issue will be whether in a future payments landscape we can best anchor security, safety, and use of money by providing a central bank digital currency. And a future payments landscape could be stablecoins. You know, these technological developments aren't going to stop simply because we don't provide a CBDC. I think it's going to be very difficult to ban technology. It doesn't normally last if you try and ban technology. So I think new forms of private money are going to come in. Cash is going to disappear. And the question is going to be, what role could a CBDC play in kind of anchoring confidence uh, and fungibility. On the downside, there would be a hit to banks. They may face that hit anyway if people move their deposits into stablecoin, but clearly to the extent that people move deposits into uh, CBDC, that will affect the banking sector and it would need to adjust. And there are lots of issues around privacy. I mean, do you want the private sector knowing your data? Do you want the state knowing your data? Huge issues around that. And there's a tension because you want people to use this. No point in doing it if they don't use it. But you don't want them to use it in such a disruptive way that it can really damage the financial system. So it's not obvious that we must do this to me, but it's actually not obvious to me either that the status quo is going to be sustainable. That's what we'll look at. Yeah, it's fascinating. Now it is that we're kind of focused on our core strength when it comes to crypto assets, and that would be developing market standard documentation and the implications on risk and capital requirements, two areas that we're looking at. So legal documentation and risk and capital. We recently established a new digital asset legal and documentation working group with the aim of developing standard definitions and templates for crypto products and derivatives in particular. Much the same way we deal with interest rate FX, equity, credit, et cetera. We think it's very important to deal with developing common industry standards, whether it's going to be for crypto assets or potentially central bank digital products as well. So just give you a flavor of kind of what we're exploring and working on. We hope to bring everybody around the table to make sure we have a a good conversation to develop common standards around this. Do you think that's a useful process in the conversation going forward to unpack these questions? Yeah, I think it is. There's been a lot of discussion about do you bring things inside the regulatory perimeter or do you leave 
outside and I could say, do you bring things within industry standards or do you leave them outside? It's the same discussion. I think this technology is going to be increasingly applied to financial products and you need to make sure same risk, same regulation applies or same risk, same industry standard kind of applies in that sense. So I think it is important to bring them kind of into the ambit of what you do and the like. I'd say that they are different though. CBDC, you know, you would be dealing with basically something that's 100% safe. A stable coin, you might be dealing with something that purports to have a stable value that would be regulated and safe or whatever. A derivative on Bitcoin, no matter what you do to the derivative, the underlying is pretty volatile. So um, I think standardization, I think there's an awful lot of basically gray areas, fraud, crime, all sorts of things that happens in the world, in the exchanges and the transfer of these assets and industry standards can can kind of help protect users in that case. But at the end of the day, if something doesn't have any intrinsic value, you know, then you can't give it intrinsic value by financial engineering. I think really having a stable foundation, I mean, there's a lot of legal questions about what these things are in bankruptcy, how you deal with them in bankruptcy. Those are some of the key issues we'd like to unpack here. So it's really important. I'd like to briefly touch on another important issue, and that's climate change. The UK is hosting COP26. We're entering the second week as we record this. To what extent is this perceived by the Bank of England as a threat to financial stability? And what is the bank doing to ensure that UK financial institutions are monitoring and quantifying and preparing for those risks? We've been pretty active in this area for a number of years. It started quite a few years ago with the way you'd expect it to start with risk. What risk are you facing? And of course, it started with the insurance industry because that's where you expect to see the, the impacts of climate change happen first as a logic. And they use the modeling extreme weather events. So we started with insurance, but it moved a few years back to the question of the banking system. And basically, how does the banking system understand the climate risks of the real economy which it is supporting? And it's not just about sort of fossil fuel firms and the like. It's actually car manufacturing, heat. I mean, you go through the economy and climate change, if we don't act, will have an impact on those assets. But if governments do act, that'll have an impact as well. And it changes the value of those assets. You only have to look at the market value of Tesla to get some idea of how sort of the shifts in government regulation around electric vehicles can change asset values. So the aim was to get the banking system thinking about that, not in the immediate sense that these assets are changing. It's not a financial crisis. They will change. The value of those things will change over time. And then we've launched our first climate stress test of the banking system. It's an exploratory test. It's not a pass or fail, which is designed to get the banking system thinking about that. We've done a lot of work with the Network for Greening the Financial System, which was set up after the Paris COP, to develop scenarios against which the financial system can really plan. And those are scenarios for no action, scenarios for public sector action in a kind of smooth and graduated way, but also a scenario in which the public sector doesn't act towards the end, and therefore nothing much happens for a bit, and then an awful lot happens in a short while. And that's been a really big focus of our work on climate. And extending that, and I think a lot of efforts, and this is more on the periphery of our interest, extending that from insurance and banking to asset management and the markets. And some of the work Mark Carney's been doing, try and push 
those considerations out. And there's a lot more to be done by other actors. Disclosure. And what firms disclose, I'm trying to find a way to ensure that there is consistency in those standards because there's lots of different standards against which people disclose. I think the involvement of the um, kind of international standards, audit standards, accounting standards will really help bring that together. So we've been quite closely involved with that as well. And then we are starting to think about this. Of course, our job is the demand management of the economy to keep inflation at target and the like. And increasingly, we're going to have to think about the big sectoral shifts. You know, it'll affect employment, it'll affect productivity and the like. The big sectoral shifts that will have to happen in our economies on the route to net zero. And that's a different part of the bank's responsibility. It's not the financial sector. It's about economic management that I think is going to become increasingly important. I think governments increasingly, they haven't quite got there yet. Let's see where they get to, but increasingly they're going to have to set out what they're, so we've had a lot of commitments, not as many as I think we'd like. We've had a lot of commitments, net zero, but of course the key thing is what's the path? How does one get there in the smoothest, most efficient way? Which are the intermediary technologies you need to keep for a while? You know, we can't turn off fossil fuels tomorrow. We're seeing some evidence of that in the gas market. And governments, I think, increasingly will need to set out the path they hope for net zero, what they will do with carbon pricing, what they will do with regulation and the like. And we need to start factoring that in to our economic management. But actually, the financial sector, I think, will need to factor it in. My sense is the financial sector is probably ahead of governments in thinking a little bit about these issues and in trying to work out how this will affect risk return on assets. I think increasingly the public sector is going to need to catch up and if you like give the financial sector the steer, the guidance it needs to really be able to direct finance economically to where it's needed, but also deal with risk. That's a, it's a big issue for us and an area we're pretty engaged in. I think two of those points are really important. One is on the modeling. You're taking climate models, really complex mathematical and climate related, marrying them with the complexity of risk management. You know, that's a big body of work and we wish you the best of luck on that. And the other part I think is spot on is you're talking about sending the right market signals. What are the right behaviors that the market can make the investment in? What are the behaviors your governments are not going to allow? And then I think you can trust that financial sector will drive those investments and establishing those clear signals now will help get the right outcomes. So let me um, finish the podcast with a question I ask all of our guests. And you've had an incredibly varied career, including various roles at HM Treasury, acting as Prime Minister's advisor on Europe and global issues between 2007 and 2011, and acting as a UK permanent representative to the EU in 2012 and 2013. So what has been a career highlight of yours personally? And how do you think about this? Oh, well, so I'll just say that I've been really privileged because I've had the chance to work on an enormous range of issues, um, things that were kind of not just intellectually stimulated, very satisfying to do. So not everyone gets that chance. So it's been great to have that opportunity. I'm thinking whether it's easier to identify the highlights or the lowlights. <laughs> but probably better talk about the highlights. <laughs> Save the lowlights for my memoirs if I ever write them. It's just been lots of very different things. I think in terms of the point at which I thought we went closest to the brink and came out will be the London Summit in 2009. So 
whether the world economy had just started turning, whether the London summit turned it, whether it reinforced the turn, I don't know. But those leaders went into that room worried uh, not about a recession, but about a global depression. They managed to come out with an agreement and a plan. And I think it was not just what was in the plan, it was the fact they had an agreement and a plan that restored confidence. And, you know, just being involved in that, I think, and, and just seeing the turn was incredibly tiring, but kind of enormously satisfying. But, you know, I've done Bank of England independence when I was in the Treasury, and I'm now in the bank, and I still think it's a good thing. <laughs> you know, there's been a, there's been a, a lot of things. I've just been very lucky. Terrific. Great career and two good examples of very important issues. We're going to leave it there, but thank you for being generous with your time, and thank you for giving us great answers and insights to your thinking. So thank you very much. Well, Scott, thanks for the opportunity and look forward to working with you guys in the future. Thank you. Thanks. Well, Scott, that didn't disappoint. You covered a lot of ground, but I'd like to pick up on the crypto discussion. Obviously, this is very much a live issue as everyone tries to work out how this market will evolve, what impact it will have on financial markets and how it will be regulated. We heard from former CFTC chair Chris Giancarlo on this in the last episode, and he argued very passionately that regulators should be careful not to extinguish innovation by coming down too hard on the crypto sector. Based on what Sir John said, do you see that being at odds with the regulatory view? I don't. When you listen to what he said, he wasn't fighting technology, and he's thinking about the future and the future of money. Both of them are passionate about this. Both of them, I think, have a very forward view, recognizing that technology and the delivery of money will be changing. Now, I do think they have a slight difference of perspective, one Chris being a market regulator and John being a prudential regulator. And I think Chris is no longer a regulator and certainly John is. So that probably colors their current positions as well. But I don't think they're fighting the technology. I think they see it going in very similar ways. So they're working to think about the future and how they're going to both deal with it. We could go on and on and discuss this, but we're out of time. So we'll have to finish there. Rest assured, though, that this is a topic we'll be revisiting again. Clearly, there's a lot to discuss. Until then, you can read some of our latest papers on this subject, including our response to the Basel Committee on the Prudential Treatment of Crypto Asset Exposures. And you can find that on our website. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.